Hi guys, Mike here. Today's guest is our first professional from the world of film studios. We discuss how he got started in the business in advertising with Americans bringing over tins full of cash for shoots in the 80s, how he had to find dancing elephants for shoots, falling in and out of the industry, the importance of hustling for jobs, his advice on setting up a production company, what a studio manager actually does, and how he had to ankle grind thousands of pounds worth of door to pieces in one of the worst moments of his career. That's enough from me. Let's get to the episode. And you literally flying around the country in a car, going into Pinewood when the days when you could, and just walking around and seeing, you know, the Batmobile or the Batman set. And everyone was lovely and it was, well, they still are, but it was very much a more, much more of, a, of an open house. Hello and welcome to Red Carpet Rookies. My name is Mike Battle, a screenwriter and production team member working for studios in London. Each episode, I bring you advice and stories from film and TV professionals to help educate and empower the next generation of filmmakers and crew. Thanks for joining me. Let's get started. Today's guest is a first for the show, with a varied career that has spanned both post-production, advertising and production company management. He sits today as the studio manager of the world's oldest film studio at Ealing in London home to historic productions such as 1955's The Lady Killers, as well as more recent fare like Oscar-winning Darkest Hour, Shaun of the Dead, and of course, Downton Abbey. Our guest is Charlie Fremantle. How are you doing today? Oh, hi, Mike. Thank you. Uh, great to see you again. And uh, it's all good. <laughs> good to see you too. Now, I actually know that you're a listener of the show, so you'll know that my first question is always the same. What did your parents do, and did that change your career aspirations moving forward? No, my parents were completely the opposite of what I do. Uh, my father was army and industry, as was his dad. And my mum, I hate the word, was housewife. She looked after us and did what she did. Um, yeah, completely different to what I do. He was desperate for me to go into the military. I wasn't so keen. Um, I, you know, I love the idea of it, but the idea of having been a boarding school for nine years and then going back into some kind of institutionalized environment just didn't appeal. So, um, no, uh, yeah, I did uh, the total opposite of what they wanted me to do. <laughs> but once they found out the path I was kind of going towards, um, which was more of the artistic route, um, they were very supportive. So did you ever have to sort of come out to your dad and say, I want to work in the arts? No, I'll be quite honest. Um, I was hopeless at school. I, was, I failed everything and hadn't got a clue what to do. Uh, I think my parents were tearing their hair out. And I got an opportunity through somebody we knew who introduced me to a... Oh, no, sorry, I'm going back in time. Um, I was always keen on drawing and painting at school and never took it seriously. And... We went for an interview at an art college in London um, and the principal said, gosh, there's something there. Come to, come and do a foundation course um, for X many days a week, providing you study for more O-levels, you know, the other two days a week, which I did. And then I retook the course again full time, having, you know, done all that. And I stayed and did a, uh, a degree or diploma, as it was, in fine art at City and Guilds. And that was a fascinating experience. It just taught you a lot of how to look at things, really, how to look, draw what you see, not what you know. You know, it was a really good piece of advice. And what was it that you were aspiring to at that point? Did you not really know? 
Were you trying to be a painter? No, uh, that was a sad thing. I had, I had ideas of how I wanted to paint, but, you know, I just wasn't good enough. I'll be brutally honest. I, I enjoyed it. I, it was okay. I really enjoyed it, but I wasn't good enough to be an artist. But I think it was more to get more of a life experience, learn something, and then say, right, what am I going to do after this? So, yeah, and then I kind of got an intro to a home, home economist who was doing uh, food for, for photographic shoots. And in the same building was a film production company, and they wanted a runner. And I thought, that sounds interesting. And I like them. They were nice people. And so that's how I got started in, in this industry. Oh, brilliant. Did they interview you? How was the process? Was it just because you knew them through the job? Well, it was kind of strange because the, the photographer and they were, were in the same building on the same floor, so sharing a floor in the same building. I was always, you know, it was a very small building, so we were always seeing each other and chatting. And I think they just said, look, you know, when their PA left, um, they said, look, we need someone to step in and just, hell, are you interested? And I went, yeah, love it. I love the idea of that. And what were your memories of that? Because the film industry, being a runner, is famously quite difficult and arguably more difficult the more years back you go. What were your memories of it? It was in the 80s, mid-80s. And my memories were Americans coming over, doing huge shoots with literally tin cases full of cash and you know just proper jobs like proper advertising budgets doing big jobs and the most one the ones that really stuck in my mind we did one for the american marine corps and i was it was it was the days of first class travel double bedroom for single occupancy i mean it was unbelievable and i was what early 20s and you were just on these incredible shoots on a location with amazing people just being amongst the sort of everything you know it was just special effects tons of extras lots of shiny kit and it was you know it was hard it was cold it was wet you were outside but you were treated as an adult to a a degree and it was just I loved it I loved being around that whole kind of buzz and the environment of it that's what stuck with me and 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 fax machines (laughs) you get a script from an advertising agency that come in on a fax you know, if it wasn't open on a tropical beach, it would be something else. And you just go, ooh. And what I really enjoyed actually was actually doing the research. And at one time it was, oh, Charlie, can you find us a dancing elephant? It was for a beer commercial. And I went, yeah, I'll do that. And there was a thing, the, the knowledge, the book, the knowledge directory thing. That was the Bible at the time. Um, and I thought, oh, I'll bring up some animal people. And you ring three of them up and they all seem to have a dancing elephant. And then after a while, it suddenly twigs. You go, hang on a minute. <laughs> and it's the same elephant. It's called Bully the Elephant. And it was actually owned, I think, by Jim Chipperfield. <laughs> so you kind of go, ah, ah, he's the man I need to speak to, not these other guys. But those were the kind of things that I loved. It was just seeing a fax come through and then seeing it be created and all the processes that went with it. Yeah. And then what led to you sort of falling out of the industry almost? Because you ended up having a a random spate of, of jobs, didn't you? In lifts and things like that. Did you almost feel like you kind of, how did you fall out? And then how did you get back in, I guess? I was with that, that commercials company for about two years. And, you know, I needed to move on at the time. And it's going to sound like the wrong thing to say, but to be a PA at the time, most PAs were, were female and had excellent typing skills, of which I was neither. Um, <laughs> 
So, so I did a typing course, you know, just to try and learn a bit. It just wasn't happening because it was very much, it was a very female-dominated sector of the market. I did loads and loads of hideous odd jobs. I worked on building sites as a ganger's mate. I put in steels for lift shafts. I worked for catering companies in the evenings. I mean, it was hard. But again, all those things. Oh, shifting rubbish at County Hall. That was a good one. <laughs> but it, it, you, you just learn to deal with just really different types of people in different environments. And I think that's been a really major learning curve, is dealing with people, working with people from all types of, you know, all areas of life. Anyway, after I did all those, that's right, it was Kay's directory. And I hustled like a beast to get there. And I got the job with Bernard or for Bernard. Um, and again, that was amazing. He said, right, here's your car. Here's an order form. That's your territory. Off you go. And you literally flying around the country in a car, going into Pinewood when the days when you could, and just walking around and seeing, you know, the Batmobile or the Batman set. And everyone was lovely. And it was, well, they still are, but it was very much a more, much more of, a, of an open house. So I got in back through doing sales, and I worked at EMAP selling advertising space, which was a really, you know, that was a good experience. Just, again, cold calling people and being taught how to cold call people on the telephone, which is terrifying. But it's a good experience. You learn, you know, how to deal with rejection. And a lot of people, I find, actually cannot pick up a phone to a stranger and make a call, even now. Interesting. Yeah, I find that most people in the film industry are better than the general populace because it's just so fast you've got to get that thing now i spend a lot of time <laughs> on the phone but i was going to say that after that sort of patchwork of job you know moving through learning sales with the case diary mm. one of the things i wanted to ask about is you found yourself with your own production company and then also setting them up for others here and there i'm aware this is a big question so take it however you yeah. like but how does one set up a production company because i know quite a few people who want to do it and it's mm. seems very difficult more difficult than the number of people who want to that was interesting. Um, well, I, my background was at that time was in sales. Um, I had, there was a chap I was introduced to called, um, called Gav. And Gav had a music video, really good music video production company. Um, and he had a mate called Andy. Um, and Andy was a producer, commercials producer. And we all kind of got together and we all thought, hang on a minute, you know, Andy's a producer, I hustle. Gav's got the space and we all chucked in, I think it was five grand each and said, Let, let's start up a company, a commercial a production company. Um, and I, we thought, okay, well, we haven't got any directors. So how do we do that? Um, but Andy knew a couple. I knew some sort of directors from my days in post-production because it was sort of design post-production. Um, and they'd done music videos and commercials and, no one was representing them. So I thought, okay, well, I'll tell you what, I'll take a real punt. I'm going to fly to New York. I'll take some showreels with me. I didn't know anybody in New York. So I just rang up random production companies in New York and said, I'm coming out. I just want to see whether, you know, you're interested in English, English directing talent. And they went, yeah. So I went out for a week. Uh, anyway, I came back. And about three weeks later, I got a box of about 32 Umatic tapes. Do you remember them? No. <laughs> they were, they were <laughs> Umatics were uh, basically cassette tapes about half the size of a serial packet, which directors put their showreels on. Um, they were huge. 
but that's, that, was a, that was a standard format at the time. And uh, so I got a box of these with different directors on them from one of the people I'd met in New York. She said, look, take your pick, represent any of these you like. And one of them was a guy called Tom Schiller, who was a, one of the original writers for Saturday Night Live. And Tom's reel was just very, very different, very funny. And it was just perfect. It, was, it, was, it just hit the market at the right time. It was, it was quirky American comedy. And it was exactly what the commercials industry was looking for at that time. And we just did really well with Tom. We flew him in and did some great gigs with Tom. And that's how it sort of started. Um, and I was, we were up in Kensal Rise, Kensal Studios for about a couple of years. And then I moved it to Soho. We had an office in Soho in uh, Broadwick Street. And being sort of, by that time Andy had gone, Gav was on the sort of back burner. And um, I thought, well, I'm a more or less a one-man band. It's a tough market. You know, the, the American director thing had kind of, they got bigger and better. And I was just a tiny fish in a, in, a, in a big pond. And I thought, I think it's time I'm going to quit while I'm ahead. Are there any sort of common pitfalls you saw when people start up production companies from your time doing it? Doing us when we did it with no clear idea. <laughs> um, no, I think most people who do it do it properly. Um, and they have a director, producer team, and they've already got tech clients under their belt so they can just hit the ground running. So, after your years in the production company world, you became a film studio manager ultimately, which is what you do now. Could you describe what that job entails for the uninitiated? Everything. Everything I've learned in my careers. Is, I think it's wrapped up in this role. It's part sales, it's part psychologist, it's part fortune teller, it's uh, organizer, scheduling, budgeting, managing people, which is what it really is, and basically making shit happen. What we do as, at Ealing is we have multiples of rooms of different sizes and stages of different sizes. And my role is ultimately to fill all of those spaces all of the time with productions and people and make sure that those productions of people are happy and everything works, <laughs> that, you know, in their time of dealing. That's really boiling it down, I think, to a brass tax and obviously making, you know, yeah, that, that's what it is. Yeah, I feel like this is going to be hard for you to answer. But if anyone listening to this did want to get into studio management, is there any sort of path at all? I know yours was obviously ping-ponging around but there are other studios around more like Warner Brothers where it might be a bit more of a ladder or something I don't think there is a path I don't know of it I think there are very there are a few of us a handful of us maybe um I know one she was in post-production I think before she did her she was in studio management and I think it's about being it's about it's a people business. And I think if you've got people skills, which I'd like to think I have, uh, some, some, some may disagree. Um, <laughs> but I think if you can deal with people and you can, you can schedule things and just you can think on the hoof and, and you know, manage space, that's it really. But also, actually, I do think you, you need to have an in, a, a knowledge of the industry. That does help because then it means you can talk to people about their industry and it just makes conversation easier. And if I'd come from selling bottles of Johnny Walker, you know, you wouldn't have so what do you know? You know, nothing. 
it sounds like something that comes out from just being in and around it all. And sometimes there's, there's such random jobs that when one opens, you have to be in the vicinity for it to happen, really, aren't there? Yeah. I mean, for example, I mean, I got into this business by total accident or into this side of it. I was uh, in a really, really good so engineering company making, they were making color grading systems. And I felt that my time there had come to an end and was at home literally writing my CV because even though I love working there, I just thought I can't add any more. I can't give them any value. And I felt guilty. I just thought I can't, I can't, you know, I just sitting, I can't just sit and pretend because I don't speak color grading if I'm brutally honest. I just, I'm not techie. Um, and I needed to move on. Um, anyway, I got a call, funnily enough, from Bernard Kay, Kay's, who I worked for many years ago, and said, um, I know somebody who's got a studio in West London. Um, they're looking for someone to do the marketing for it. Do you know anyone who's interested? And I went, actually, I think I might be. Anyway, I met the owner, and he had this place that he didn't really know what to do with. It had been empty for years. But I think he wanted to turn it back into a studio, but didn't know how to do it. And, I, and basically, there was an element of trust. He trusted me. I said, I'm willing to give it a go. I walked in on the first day and I thought, what the hell am I doing? Um, I hadn't got a clue. Um, but, but just by, you know, listening to people, producers who came in and said, you could turn these rooms into dressing rooms or what you need is this or you should do that. And you kind of get a lot of information that you take a view on and you go, actually, that's really interesting. Um, and you just learn. You just kind of use a bit of common sense and get a feel for the place. Um, and that's how that started. In terms of problems that you deal with, does it change much from project to project? So, for example, Downson is obviously at one end, but then you had last night in Soho at Ealing recently. Is it quite different or are the problems similar? And what do they kind of look like? Productions tend to be the same, similar. There are disasters. Um, there was one I had not here. <laughs> it was one of the, I have two low points in my career and this is one of them. It was a, a rock and roll musical had rigged up a 40-foot truck with an entire rock and roll rig on it. And they came in to rehearse um, because they were out on the road the next day to do some uh, promotional stuff in the streets. So they reversed this massive truck into the stage and it was all great. And they said, we need to be out at 6.30. We thought, not a problem. Uh, and the time came and the new roller shutters that we had had put in on the stage failed. They didn't open. Nothing would open them. The engineers were up in the north and we were basically screwed. And we thought, well, what the hell are we going to do? The producer was down my neck saying, look, you've got a quarter of a million quid's worth of stuff here. And if I'm not on the road, you're liable for this. So you just start sweating and go, okay, what on earth can we do? And there was nothing we could do. Absolutely nothing. We tried everything. The only option angle grinder oh. <laughs> <laughs> get an angle grinder and cut a brand new door in half and get the truck out that's all you could do sounds expensive uh, well yeah it was fairly spenny and you just but that's all you could do you have to make those decisions and that was a pretty harsh one i mean that was you know that wasn't easy that's a biggie. Um, London is obviously in the middle, and I guess the UK generally, but particularly London, is in the middle of this huge content boom, which is obviously mm. affecting you as a studio manager in Ealing. Mm. How is, uh, what's your stance on that? How's it affecting you? It's, it's overwhelming, really, isn't it? Yeah, it's changed massively. I mean, 
I've been here five years, which is frightening. Um, and when I started, which was 2017, um, we had a huge amount of shows coming in, you know, in the course of a year, for whether it be a day to do some reshoots, a week, two weeks, three weeks. I mean, it was incredible looking at the list of stuff I had in. And it was great. It was absolutely insane. I mean, you just literally just didn't stop. Um, and then there was a turn when a production came in and they wanted all of the stages for sort of eight months. And you go, oh, my God, this is unheard of. Mm. And it hasn't changed. You know, it's kind of been, it's been relentless, which is a fantastic position to be in. And it's been, you know, really good for us. Um, but there has been a huge change. And it's just looking at, you know, all the inquiries you get in. And it's trying to get those pieces of the jigsaw to fit. It's like a game of Tetris with different sized pieces falling at different rates. And you're desperately trying to make them all, you know, all level out. That's how it's been. Now, to wrap it up, I do a little quick fire questionnaire, as you know, which is my ode to In the Actors Studio. Yeah. So I'm just going to say the first question and think of whatever comes into your head. Are you ready, Charlie Fremantle? I am. Fire away. So number one is, what is one of the best pieces of advice you've ever been given? Uh, don't be afraid to ask questions. Like it, I definitely employ that one. <laughs> number two, do you have a favorite film? A Casino. Love it. Ah, Scorsese, yeah. Yeah. Number three, what gives you a reason to get out of bed every day for a day of studio life? To make stuff happen, get stuff done. I like doing yeah. Very good. There's a lot of doing in the film industry. So yeah. Yeah. Uh, number four, which job in the industry would you do if you weren't doing yours? Uh, I think it would be something in the art department. Yeah. Go back to those art roads. Yeah. I'm not sure what, but I think it would be something in the art department. Very cool. Number five, if you could, this is a hard one. If you could work with one person living or dead, who would it be? I'm just a bit, bit corny, but I think it would be my grandfather. Oh, okay. That's an interesting answer. I like that. We haven't had that before. Number six, what is a book that everyone should read? The Kid Stays in the Picture by Robert Evans. I think I've got that on my shelf behind me. <laughs> just staggering. You just think, I can't even believe this is real. Yeah. But, you know, the good old, bad old days of the 60s and 70s are paramount. You just go, oh my God. <laughs> Brilliant. It's a great answer. We haven't had that one before. And finally, if you won an Oscar, who would you thank? Um, anyone who's given me a chance. Brilliant. And on that note, our time has come to a close. Thank you very much, Charlie, for your insights and stories on the mysterious world of running a film studio. Uh, thank you, Mike. I hope it's been relatively informative. Um, but thank you very much. It's been a pleasure. Thank you for listening to another episode of Red Carpet Rookies. To help us grow and be able to interview more amazing film and TV professionals, please do subscribe and drop us a rating on the Apple Podcast Store on your iPhone or online if you're an Android user. If you're interested in regular updates, the best thing you can do is join our mailing list at redcarpetrookies.com or alternatively, find us on Instagram at redcarpetrookies or on Twitter at rcrookiespod. I also tweet regularly about my own learnings in the business at MikeFBattle on Twitter, so please do come and say hi. Thank you again for listening. We'll see you next time.